1: Mission Log Supplemental, number 21, another one with David Gerald.
2: Welcome into a supplemental edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray.
1: And I'm John
0: Champion.
2: Most of the time on Mission Log, what we do is we take apart an episode of Star Trek or a Star Trek story, but sometimes, sometimes we get to sit down with people who tell us stories about Star Trek. Uh, this week we are happy to welcome back David Gerald. Now last time we talked to him primarily about the original series, uh, and this time uh, we'll pick up with a bit more detail about the time that he spent on The Next Generation, uh, which oddly enough is where we're spending a lot of time these days.
1: Ken, one might say we're actually supplementing our discussion of Next Gen, well. <laughs> our discussion with David.
2: If one felt clever, John, they might say that, yes.
1: Yeah, I don't have that in me right now. But um, yeah, if- I will tell you this, a little later in the show, we will be joined by Larry Nemechek to discuss a new discovered document from the Roddenberry Archive. Uh, so please stick around for that. Um, it's a jam-packed show just with those two things. So we're not actually going to do a listener callback a- a feedback this time, but that will be coming. I can promise you that because,
2: boy, do we get email. All right, so we got the Larry Nemechek thing. Uh, we got the David Gerald thing. Before we get to either of those things, though, uh, we would like to introduce a sponsor for this week's show.
1: Ken, uh, I have a question for you. If, mm. if you could fly, mm-hmm. okay, so if you just woke up tomorrow morning and you're like, hey, look, I can fly, yep. uh, what would you wear?
2: What would I wear? Yeah. That, that is a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, so you know the, the clone trooper like from, uh, from the Clone Wars, I guess, uh, the, the second Star Wars movie or whatever that was? Was it Attack of the Clones from yeah, Attack of the Clones? Totally. I've, I've actually got one of those uh, helmets.
1: Oh, nice. Okay. And it's
2: got one of the fins kind of like the Rocketeer had. Yeah. I might be tempted just – I think I might have to wear that.
1: That's good. That, that's, and, and, yeah. and some clothing. I, will, I would hope so. I'd hope that there would be pants involved of some <laughs> yeah, sort. Yeah, I no, not just, just the helmet. Yeah, I yeah,
2: gotta protect the head. Everything else is free and easy. No, I'd, i you know, otherwise it'd probably be whatever the thickest canvas stuff I could find, or maybe my leather jacket, you know, because be you, like- you wanna, you wanna, you wanna knock off any abrasions that might come your way. Right.
1: It'd be like a rocketeer look, but with a yeah. clone trooper's helmet. Yeah, that's good. Well, the reason I asked, Mm -hmm. uh, our sponsor for the week is, um, it it is a very cool concept, a graphic novel called Bizarre New World. And you can visit that at bizarrenewworld.com. And I really, really want people to visit that because the creator of this comic book series and anthology, Skipper Martin, he is a Star Trek fan, and he is reaching out specifically to star trek fans and specifically through mission log because this is a story that i'm sure will be interesting to many many people in our audience the premise is exactly what i posed to you ken not not what would you wear but
2: <laughs> but it's it's about how the world would be different if i could fly
1: well not you it, no. it's man yeah i know i know but but what if one day one person woke up And could fly. Like, everything's normal. It's it's not aliens invading. It's not superheroes. It's nothing like that. Everything else is normal. But this one guy, Paul Crutcher, wakes up and he can fly. Mm -hmm. So he's special for a moment. But then what if everybody else could fly too? Then suddenly the entire world changes. The way you go to work, (laughs) the way that you interact with each other, the way you stop for coffee, all of these things change. And it's pretty amazing. What I like about this series is that he's taking a very humanistic view toward what happens. So you you take humanity and you throw in a bizarre science fiction twist, and then you've got something that's both smart and funny and has something to say, not unlike Star Trek. So I like the combination of us talking about Bizarre New World. Yeah.
2: yeah, Now, there is a cool thing that you and I talked about beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not looking for people to fund him so that he can finish this thing.
1: No, he's not a starving this thing, artist. This, yeah. this
2: thing is done. Right. And, there, and there's nothing wrong with starving artists. And that's certainly – because what we're going to do is we're going to ask you to go to Kickstarter starter and sort of support part of this but understand there is a finished product out there this this story has a beginning it has a middle and and thankfully it has an end
1: (laughs) unlike our show
2: well well, unlike like a lot of things like you know i went to that golden compass movie a few years back the one with nicole kidman and daniel craig i think it was Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and i saw it and for whatever reason i enjoyed it at the time and i just realized this year I don't think they're ever going to make the sequels. Now, I know there are books, but the point is this is not something that you're going to get into and then there's no ending. Let's say, I don't know, like, uh, no, I don't want to do that. It hurts too many people. Suffice to say, I mean, this ends. Yeah, And I'm not saying so good because it will be done. I'm saying so good you're not going to be left hanging. He's not looking for somebody to come along and, you know, give him an extra ten bucks to write an extra three pages. The pages are done except for the physical page part.
1: Right. So that's where you come in. If you go to bizarrenewworld.com, you can read a preview, you can get more information about it, and you can go to his Kickstarter campaign. And here's what's awesome. You have your choice of how to get the book. You can do a digital download although um and and i agree uh skip martin insists that the way to see this is in the real true printed format so then what happens is you can get the whole book and you can also get the anthology for bizarre new world where he's got contributors from all over the place doing these additional stories that take place in that world so the hard work is already done he spent more than 10 years developing this story and the story is ready to be released to the world. So you can get it and you can find out more at bizarrenewworld.com.
2: And can we spell that for people? Because Lord knows I had a hard time with it.
1: Sure. B-I-Z-A-R-R-E-N-E-W-W-O-R-L-D.com.
2: Bizarrenewworld.com. And it really is um, – I've, I've had the good fortune of reading I'm, – I'm a little bit more than halfway through – Mm-hmm. And I'm bummed that I didn't get to finish it before uh, before we came here. Although the good news is I won't accidentally spoil it for you. No, But, but I, I will tell you now that we've done the ad and now that my whatever obligation, I guess, to paying attention to it is over, yeah. uh, I will still be going and finishing it because I'm actually quite – I'm quite fascinated to see where it's going and find out uh, find out what's going to happen.
1: And you and I both noticed there is a Star Trek reference in the book. Yeah,
2: there is. It's, it's actually <laughs> kind of funny. I thought it was kind of funny anyway. Anyway. And it's yeah, yeah. It's it's um, well, it's a comic book. It's geeky. And I'm not saying all comic books are geeky, but it's geeky and like a weird. So you ask the question of what would I wear, mm-hmm. and that's a fairly that, that's like kind of the dumb question that you and I would ask each other. <laughs> there, there are several pages of okay. Well, how, so how would a guy fly anyway? Well, <laughs> let let this bunch of uh, engineers get together and answer that for you. Um, yeah, it, it really is. Uh, it's it's an impressive thing. Add that he's done and now you know what we're looking for people to do is make it possible for a lot of other people to find out just how impressive it is so bizarrenewworld.com and uh pledge what you can and uh and help uh help somebody else uh, realize their dream <laughs>
1: To kick things off, what I really want to do is have you sort of fill the gap a little bit. We know that you worked on the animated series. Uh, we discussed BEM at length in our show. And um, then that time between the end of the animated series and then going into Next Gen. I know well, that you worked on Land of the Lost, L- Logan's Run. Um, yeah,
0: um, yeah. we. I, I was on in the animated series. Uh, Lou Scheimer took a shine to me, uh, liked me a lot. Uh, I liked Lou. We lost him last year, I think. Yeah, And uh, he's just, Lou was a funny guy. Um, He'd spin off titles and tell his artists, go give me a poster, Snow White and the Seven Ghosts. Uh, Snow White is a a cat, and the Seven Ghosts are his previous uh, seven lives that he's lost. And so he's only got two lives left and give me a poster on that and then and then he would spin off like six of these and then the NBC vice president would come in and and, and uh, 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 Lou would bring in the posters and line them up and says, and these are the shows we have in development. Well, they weren't. They were just posters <laughs> with titles. And the NBC vice president would say, oh, yeah, I like that one. I know, no, yes, all right. And, and that was how they sold Saturday morning shows. And it was, Lou had it down. And he had, uh, so after uh, Star Trek animated, he had Tarzan. Yeah. And I wrote two scripts for it, pilot scripts. Um and then he sent me off to talk to Edgar Rice Burroughs Jr., which I thought would be a great honor. Uh and and the guy was and you know, I it was like already thirty, I think, so I knew what I was doing. I'd written and published a bunch of novels, had some Hugo and Nebula nominations, and I like to think that I was you know, approaching what would eventually be, you know, my prime. I like to think I was really Get it? I understood, mm-hmm. and I had gone back. I'd read the Tarzan books, and really did. Uh, it's said, gee, you know, let's be more honest to Tarzan than anyone else has ever been. Let's stay true to the source material. And I go in, and Herb Junior. Balls me out for daring to rewrite the greatest li- the greatest writer in the history of the entire English language. I said, I'm not <laughs> rewriting Shakespeare, and um, or Dickens or. <laughs> uh, or Mark Twain, <laughs> <laughs> or Harlan Ellis. Anyway, but he balls me out, and um, or Theodore Sturgeon, and, or Heinlein, and uh, so. But he balls me out, and I go back to Lou Scheimer. I don't want to work on Tarzan. If I, he says, you'll never have to deal with that man again. I said, you know, he's killed my enthusiasm. And, and then uh, Joe Terratero, the uh, the NBC vice president, comes in one day, and says, "I want you to go over and meet with Sid and Marty. They've got this thing that they're having some trouble with." So. Um, uh, Sid had this book of pictures that he had cut out from various magazines and magazine covers, which hurt to look at. Oh my God, he's cutting up magazines! <laughs> and uh, tells me this very vague story about there's this place, but he didn't have a story. And they said, "Can you make this work?" And of course, I was very, I mean, arrogant and hubris and, and uh, You know, like, okay, yeah, I can make it work. And I did what I, the trick I learned from Star Trek. I learned uh, the first season of Star Trek. Gene had hired only or mostly science fiction writers. And going to the animated show, Dorothy had done the same thing when she was producing. So, yeah, I can make this work. So, I was a story editor and I brought in Ben Bova, Norman Spinrad, Weena Sturgeon, Ted's wife. Walter Kane wanted to prove he could write and he did a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I brought in science fiction writers who knew their way around a the script. They They did a great job. They made me look good. And people still talk about Land of the Lost. Not for its great special effects, but for the storytelling. Yeah. So it was a great lesson to learn. Uh, somewhere in there, there was this movie that came out with Wookiees and stuff. And, <laughs> and everybody went crazy. And I thought, oh, my God, this is going to change science fiction. And and in ways, not necessarily for the best. Um, and sure enough, we had a lot of imitations. A lot of imitation Star Wars. Now, But in 1977... Universal wanted to do Buck Rogers and I worked on that for a while and, and then it hit a dead end and they brought it back with a different group of people but they had also been doing Star Trek Phase 2 and they had and now Mark Cushman knows this whole story better than I do that NBC realized they had made a mistake with Star Trek almost immediately and they wanted to bring it back but Paramount said no because they were making so much money off the syndicated episodes they were terrified that a new Star Trek would compete with the syndicated show. It's like, no, but... And they went back and forth. NBC kept saying, we want to bring Star Trek back, and Paramount kept saying no. And when Paramount finally said, we want to bring Star Trek back, nobody could get everybody to the table at the right time, but finally Paramount says, all right, we're going to do Phase 2 with Gene. Mm-hmm. And Gene and... Uh, he." Uh, uh, I was going to do a script for him, and then I went over and worked on Buck Rogers... Then, of course, Star Wars came out and Paramount said, gee, we want a Star Wars, too. Everybody wanted a Star Wars. Suddenly, every studio wanted their own blockbuster summer sci-fi picture. And Paramount execs look around and say, gee, we'd like to have our own Star Wars. So they said, well, let's turn Star Trek into a feature. Uh, This was, in one respect, a a mistake because Star Trek works best as a TV series, as a feature feature. You have to have a big budget, so you have to have lots of special effects. And it turns into, gee, we have to have a villain to fight, which is what almost all the movies have been about. But not when Gene was there. Gene was ambitious, he says, we want to do. Gene was always challenging the idea of, let's go out and meet God. Which is not an easy story to tell, but Gene was ambitious. And I I always thought, as difficult a story as that is, got to give him credit for trying it. Because Star Trek's the only place where you can tell that story, really. The problem with that motion picture is it got out of control. There were multiple uh, uh, drafts of the script. Uh, the first guy doing special effects wasted, you know, I've, I forget how much, 10, uh, $3 million, 5 million how million, we don't know how much. He built these beautiful models and then blew them up in his test reels. They had to replace him with Doug Trumbull. Right. So right then, you're in the hole for a few million. And then they brought along Robert Wise, who is a brilliant director. I cannot say enough wonderful things about Robert Wise. I mean, you look at the man's career, the sand pebbles, Sound of Music, West Side Story, The Day the Earth Stood Still. He knew how to bring a picture in and make it work. And who wouldn't want to work with Robert Wise? So it was a dream project, but it ballooned out of control. And the studio blamed Gene. It wasn't all Gene, but part of the problem was they were getting script pages delivered to the set after they'd already shot the scene from the pages they already had. So the script was always being rewritten during the entire process, so nobody knew what costumes or props or sets or whatever they were going to need until the last minute. There were delays. And the film shipped wet. Now what that means is... You take it out of the developer, you put it in the can, you don't even dry it off. It's going to dry off on its first trip through the projector. There were problems with it. It, it, One of the problems was Paramount said, we paid all this money for special effects. We want to see the special effects. So the director's cut, Robert Wise's cut, which had some very key characterization scenes, was only seen on airplanes. There are are pieces missing from the theatrical version that would have made it a better picture. Right. Right and because and and then m- this is my personal complaint is that the picture had this score by Jerry Goldsmith which was brilliant opening score brilliant opening bit with the klingon stuff but then it was a very slow-paced score almost turgid and so here you have all these dark special effects they're not bright enough and this turgid score and the picture seems to lumber along slowly and it's very frustrating cuz star trek was always bright colored and fast paced. So what we got was not bright colored and fast paced.
1: Well, so let me ask you this: you, you were around for that transition of Phase Two. You, yeah. you uh, aware of the production of yeah, Phase I Two, and in then
0: touch with a lot. yeah,
1: and then you were there for the motion picture. And if, I, I think everybody listening knows that you're in that shot. Uh, yeah, if we want to look for you in the rec room. John and a lot standing of the, next
0: to Robert Wise's wife.
1: Oh, nice! <laughs> and it's kind of the family reunion. John and Bijo Joe are there, John and, and B- you're there, and, and Susan uh, uh, there. Dorothy is bunch of the there. Bay area uh,
0: fans, yeah, and and. Uh, people yeah
1: but then at the end of the motion picture so it didn't do as well as people expected and then the you have this, out. It, well it made a lot of money but critically it was
0: not no not it was a well critical received, disaster no. but star yeah. trek fans went back and saw it a dozen yeah, times right, right. wouldn't. Uh, it was beautiful to look at certainly on it's the screen yeah yeah picture yeah. and it's underrated and it's not my favorite movie yeah, right right um it's it's but for me, the fun was getting to spend time with Kirk and Spock and McCoy, the, all the other characters. Eh, but yeah. you know, the the key for me with Trek is always Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Well, so then you have uh,
1: you have a change, you have a regime change, and, and Harve Bennett comes in to do two. All right, so and then you've got this is, gap up so through. What happens
0: is the studio mm-hmm. knows they can do Star Trek movies and make money. Mm-hmm but they don't want Gene involved because they blame... Gene got to take the blame for the picture, all the, everything that went wrong. So Gene gets kicked upstairs to Emeritus. They let him keep his office, but he's got... Now, one of the smart things Gene did, Gene had a cutthroat lawyer, a man I despise and cannot say enough bad things about, but uh, representing Gene, he did a lot of great things to protect Gene's interests in the show. And so every time there was a movie, there was a renegotiation with Gene where Gene got whittled away Paramount's position a little bit more and Gene got a little bit better position, which if I had been in the same place, I'd have done the exact same thing. I would have wanted a lawyer. Every bit is evil. So the studio goes to Harv Bennett and they say, we want to try bringing back Star Trek. We know there's money here and we're going to do it as a TV movie. And Harv Bennett says to them, let me shoot it in such a way that we could release it to the theaters. And if the film is good enough, I want you to release it to the theaters. And the studio agrees, because there's more money to be made. So Harv Bennett shoots the Wrath of Khan. Now, he sends me an early draft of the script. He sent it to Ted Sturgeon as well, and I forget who else. And uh, I I sent him a memo, 90% of which was wrong, but there is a scene in it, in midway through the script, where Spock dies. And, and it's really just the... the, the training mission. And I said to him this is a great scene, move it to the beginning. <laughs> because first of all there's already the rumor that Spock dies. Right, so right. this will defuse it the audience, oh this is what it was. But also it plays this wonderful little joke on the audience. You start off with this incredible action scene and everybody dies. The audience is going, "Oh my god, what's going on?" And then you open it up, Kirk walks in, Turt walks up to Spock, I thought you you know were dead, whatever. Yeah. And you realize it's this whole training mission. And it's great because it kicks you into high gear. And Harv Bennett said, you know, next draft of the script I saw, that was what they had done. And I get a call from Harv. Uh, We just got the first cut, the answer print, right out of the developer. uh, Nick Myers and I are going to screen it tonight you want to see it. So like man I'm down at the street like <laughs> you know that was that streak between the valley and Hollywood like, right. and I go into the screening room and, and there's, I'm in like the fourth row or whatever and Harv right. and Nick come in and sit in the back and I said alright I should go say hello but you know they, this, the movie starts and for the, about two minutes I think this is great and then I said Am I allowed to laugh? That was funny. And I thought, how the hell with (laughs) it? I'm just going to have a good time. I'm watching Star Trek. (laughs) Nice. And and I just laughed at all the, you know, and gasped at all the, and and just reacted full out in in an empty theater. And I get a call from Harv the next day. He says, oh, God, thank you. For what? He says, for enjoying yourself. We didn't know if the jokes were going to work. We didn't know if the movie was going to work. Thank you. Now we know it works. And then he calls me again two weeks later after the picture opens and says, Every place you laughed, the audience laughed. Every place you reacted, the audience reacted. You're my official pre-screener, so I'll know what the jokes were. And so Harve and I just really hit it off, and, and I really respect it, that he understood what a Star Trek movie needed to be. And I cannot say enough nice things about Nick Meyer, who is just a marvelous writer. And and he's a great director. He, he understood part way in, he says... He wrote this in one of his interviews or one of his books. He said, I didn't know what I was doing. And one day I said, wait a minute. I I don't have to be careful. I can take chances here because this might be the only time I ever get to direct. And so he did a lot of really nice things with uh, Khan. I I enjoyed the picture enormously. And I think if, if you ask the fans, they would rate it as... The second best Star Trek movie of all time. The first best being Galaxy Quest. <laughs> <laughs>
1: of course. Well, So there, there's this time then where the, the movie franchise is in Harv's hands. And then we get to and, 1986. And, and,
0: and Gene is off in and, exile. And, yeah, He's Gene's off, off
1: doing something there. else. And then these rumors and start to hold water that there will be a new TV series. And I mean, I'm curious when you started hearing yeah. about this and when yeah, this became no, a reality. You have to understand.
0: There's like five movies Before Gene, before we get to 1986. And Gene is very bitter about the fact that he doesn't get to be part of the production. He gets to be the producer emeritus. He gets to read the scripts. Um, Gene was also, uh, he was leaking the scripts. If he didn't like the script, he'd leak it and then let the fans complain
1: uh well you mentioned the 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 spock death and yeah. uh yeah that was revealed that that pretty much came from his office yeah but, well our yeah.
0: bennett did that thing yeah. they call a canary trap where each yeah. script was marked and right. so when the script leaked to the fans well, this was gene leaked his script yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i i mean uh uh, uh gene was was uh I I want to be polite about this. Gene had his flaws as a human being. We all do. You know, I fart in elevators and pick my nose and wipe the boogers on the vinyl couch. But Gene's flaws, you know, if you're a great man, you're entitled to great flaws. Gene gave us Star Trek. This mitigates almost everything else because Star Trek changed who we are as a people. It is a vision of us being a better species And there is nothing else in the history of movies or television that has had that impact. And that earns Gene his place in heaven. Uh, His failures as a human being, I think, that goes to something Bill Murray once said, is that when you get famous, you get two years of being a jerk. And you either recognize you're a jerk and you stop, or or it it gets stamped in indelibly. And I think this whole thing of, of fame is one of the bo- most pernicious destroyers of human relationships because it gets in the way of being able to relate to people as people. And and Gene being the great bird, it was fun when he was producing the show, but then when the fan phenomenon started, it, it kind of insulated him from the responsibility of being a, a competent producer, you know, you start to get used to being idolized and it it gets in the way. There's that bubble, you know, you're on this pedestal, whether you want to be there or not. And I don't know anybody who has really done a good job of getting off that pedestal.
1: Well, and, and this is the Gene making a show in 1986 versus a Gene making a show in
0: 1966. Yes. Now, yes. So, now, the other yeah. thing is Gene's health. Yeah. Was in decline. Majel would put him on the train and send him down to Lacoste every weekend to dry off. He would come back. It's my firm conviction that the lawyer Leonard Mazlish, was providing him with things, the kinds of substances uh, that the human body should not have to deal with on a regular basis, and it was hurting Gene physically. I mean, Gene was a big man. He was a strong man, he had a great physique. He should have had another 20 years on the planet. But substance abuse mm-hmm. destroys your body. And, and uh, so we got to 1986. He was still in mostly good shape when the studio announced that they were going to do a new Star Trek. But the new Star Trek didn't just happen because somebody at Paramount said, let's do a new Star Trek. Uh, there was uh, uh, Rick Berman wanted to do Star Trek Academy and and then Gene found out that there were negotiations with Fox to do a new Star Trek and Gene said you're not doing it without me and there were negotiations back and forth here's the 20th anniversary party and everybody expects there to be some s- spectacular announcement and there wasn't there was just this party and I was at that party I uh, chatted with Robin Williams was there uh he oh, I miss Robin he's <coughs> so, such a hero of mine and and everybody was there. We had a great time. It was a very expensive party. I mean, it looked like they must have spent at least a hundred thousand dollars on it. And we, wait a minute, what didn't get announced? Well, what it, they were that party was set up. They were going to announce the return of Star Trek, but it didn't happen because there was still stuff going on behind the scenes. Uh, and I heard this story: the studio had not been paying Gene a. Uh, a his fair share of the ownership of Star Trek. And Gene had managed to find out, uh, it's quite an interesting story, uh, I managed to find out that it was like about $30 million the studio owed Gene that he had not gotten. So, and this is one of the places where I actually have to respect what Leonard Maislis, the lawyer, did. Is So they negotiate a new Star Trek series, and when they fill in the contract, all they put in is, they, now Gene couldn't get an audit on the original series. <laughs> So they, but so the new contract, he has it, the right to audit, and the lawyer fills in on the name of the show. It's Untitled Star Trek show. Across, what is it? Star Trek, <clears throat> and they sign the contract. And shortly after the announcement, Gene apparently and the lawyer and a couple other people walk w- to one side with the president of the studio and say, "We will be auditing uh, the records on Monday." What do you mean, Red? You can't. You don't have an audit. Yes, we do. The contract says we get to audit Star Trek. <laughs> all right so the lawyer knew it is so there was our so you know the studio was not happy but the studio came back to gene and said all right we're gonna if we give it to you all in one lump sum it's going to disappear in taxes so here's how we're going to pay it out to you and they gave them a million dollar signing bonus and like a hundred thousand dollars a week or whatever to so that he it would be amortized across and which is a pretty good deal when you think about it rather than although you know there are ways to handle it any other way too but so now you have all this bad blood in place 30 years of bad blood 20 years of bad blood and Gene has got a certain degree of bitterness he said to me one day we're going to make a lot of enemies on this show which was a very accurate prediction what happened is they announced the show I sent Gene a congratulatory letter congratulations that's it October 10th they announced it I was, you know, I was hoping, yeah, maybe I'll get a script assignment. That'll be nice. Instead, I get invited to come down to the studio. And what Gene and Bob and Eddie Milkis are doing, Bob Justman, Eddie Milkis and Gene, are screening science fiction films to bring Gene back up to se- Everybody has to get back up to speed. So we screen aliens. And we screen, I, I said, let's look at Ice Pirates for the production value. Dreadful movie. Gene said this is why they brought back the death penalty. <laughs> but, I, but the production values were interesting. <laughs> Um, Because here was a low-budget movie that had some very strong values. And, and I forget what else we screened. Uh, but for two weeks, we would screen a movie. Then we would go have lunch in the executive dining room. We'd walk in. The whole room would go quiet. They'd watch us walk in. There goes $20 million on the hoof. Because they knew we had a deal. We're going straight to syndication so that we will not have to deal with NBC vice president saying, oh, you can't do this on on our show. We have broadcast standards. So we're all excited. We're going to get to do... And Rick Berman, uh, bless his little heart, and I mean that in the southern sense,
1: oh, bless your little heart,
0: (laughs) (laughs) writes this wonderful memo, three-page memo listing 10, 15 ideas on each page. You must have listed 50 or 60 ideas. Here are stories you can do issues that, you, that we should address on the new Star Trek. And number three on the list was AIDS. It was in 1986. Rock Hudson hadn't come out yet. Yeah. And I was always interested in blood donorship. Uh, kind of my way of honoring Robert A. Heinlein. So I wanted to do a script that would address the fact that blood donorship had fallen to critical levels because of the fear of AIDS. and And I thought, let's do a script where the crew of the Enterprise. This comes later. I'm getting ahead of myself. Would crew of the Enterprise has to donate blood because they run out of artificial blood. They have to donate blood and then at the end there's a card even that says, you know, the Red Cross needs blood donations. I want to do something that would demonstrate like if the follow in the week after the episode aired, the Red Cross was swamped with people showing up to donate blood, it would prove the power of Star Trek to make a difference. But anyway, Getting back to... So we have lunch every day for day. We haven't even got offices yet. We finally get offices in Building L, and they're only temporary, because Gene has said to the studio... Uh, Gene has said to the studio he wants his old offices back, the original Trek offices, and we all wanted that. So Gene's back in his original office eventually. Gene says to me, early in the process, he says, David, I want you to write the Bible, the writer's director's guide. I said, great. Now... I have to tell you, what, would, what happened, but even before we get there, Bob Justman and I are churning out memos. Lots and lots and lots of memos. It was almost a contest to see who could write them. It's like, let's do this. Let's fix this. How about this? Uh, Bob Justman suggested a holodeck. I saw story problems, but I also said, you know, that, yeah, we could do that. I said, but let's use it for training because otherwise we end up trapped in doing interior stories where we, if we're going to do those interior recreational stories, somebody has to learn something and it would be we're in transit it's cuz it's going to take a week to get where we're going or something but you know and i warned about the holodeck and then uh let's have families oh god please let's not have families <laughs> but it's all right and there's no story possibilities because again that brings us makes us stay on the ship instead of getting out there, you know, doing
1: well. Let's talk about that just a little bit as kind of a sideline because I've seen memos, some from you and some from Gene's uh, office, under, talking about the idea of families on board. And this was introduced early in the show. It kind of went away as the show carried on. But what what was the the debate
0: about that? And what I- well, it was you know we're going to put four thousand. people people on the ship, they're not going to be leaving their families behind. Well, why not? We send the, the aircraft carrier Nimitz out with 3,000, 4,000, 6,000 people on board, and they leave their families behind. Uh, well, it's a five-year mission. Or, well, in this case, a seven-year mission. Okay, they take their families with them. But kids? It's like, and, you know, it's, all right, if that's where you guys insist on going, I, I you know, it's your show, Gene, if that's where you can, you know, it, it was always whatever Gene wanted. <laughs> And, and he says, and we're, we're going to have a 15-year-old super genius, which is one of the... There is still a dent in the wall where I was banging my head. because. <laughs> I, and I said, no, because you're going to turn it into Lost in Space, where the 15-year-old super genius solves everything. And and, and Gene said it in, in the original track, if I'm not going to believe it on the bridge of the Battleship Missouri, I'm not going to believe it on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise... And and I, I wrote a memo, it's in there, it said that kid who was in Stand By Me, I had forgotten his name at the time, and mm-hmm. he was on Last Night's Saint Elsewhere, he would be perfect for Wesley Crusher, and here's the stories we should be telling, that he does not yet have the emotional experience for command, and our stories would be about training. Well, if we had gone in that route, Wesley Crusher would have been, the. You know, the idea was we have to appeal to all ages. No, we don't. I was like, you know. Uh, Doctor Who appeals to all ages, and there's no 15-year-old super genius, and most of the 15-year-olds watching Doctor Who are not super geniuses anyway. They're just ordinary kids who like Doctor Who, or whatever other show they're watching. And I think instead of this super genius thing, why not we, we show that ordinary people have heroism in them? Because that's real heroics, is when you are... Challenge to, to grow beyond what you thought you were capable of. So, uh, but see, that wasn't the Star Trek that Gene wanted to do at the time or it wasn't what he envisioned or maybe that was what Leonard Maiselich did because what we learned very early, we, now, Gene said, I want you to write the Bible. Mm-hmm. So I'm going in there and I would say to Gene, what do you want to do? I was totally at service. And whatever he wanted, I was, and He'd say, well, you tell me what you think. And this went on for two or three weeks. I'd go in, and we'd talk one character out. And I'd say, well, I think we should have an older captain who stays on board the ship as the wise old man, and our action hero is the first officer who leads the away team. That way we never put the captain in danger, which is, you know, and he goes, you know, you're right. He said, write that. So I created, uh, I, I did not create the names, but I created the, the descriptions for Picard and I, I every character I created I named Raleigh or Magellan or somebody and then and then Gene took them and, and gave them names and then I would go off and do research to make sure we weren't duplicating any anybody's name so there was a Picard who was an explorer which was a, a French explorer but uh, uh somewhere in there Gene said we should probably have a therapist counselor and yeah that probably makes sense and then the beta zoid whole beta zoid thing started and Gene, at one point, I think this was one of the... He only wrote two or three memos. One of his memos or one of his suggestions was that the Betazoid had six breasts. <laughs> and by then, Dorothy Fontana had completed her, her obligation elsewhere. She'd come aboard and said... Are these going to be horizontal or vertical? Are they going to be two rows? <laughs> and do you realize how they? It's you know these things have to be harnessed, and it's going to be a costuming problem. And the idea got dropped very quickly, Good. Because, which is, Good. is And and that shows you Dorothy has this very dry, methodical way of analyzing things that make you realize, God, that was a stupid idea. And <laughs> so. Uh, And and well, Gene was going through. Had a lot of stuff coming out of Gene's office. Uh, Was um, well, let me say it differently. Let me approach it differently. We'd sit and have a meeting, and he would do this incredible rant, this incredible speech about one time it was how religion, organized religion, was dangerous because it took people into into delusional beliefs and from out of which atrocities were committed and and so you would say how do we turn that into a story and and he you know and and he would do all of these incredible visionary speeches then you would walk out of the room inspired i want to do that story but at the same time we began to become aware that he was a little bit detached i came into the office went did you see uh, la law last night he says i don't watch tv So so he had no idea what an ensemble was. So we talk ensemble. He had no idea. To him, ensemble was uh, a couple of heroes and the seven dwarves. No, if you look at uh, L.A. Law and Hill Street Blues, those were ensemble shows where everybody was a hero. And I came in. Did you see what they did on L.A. Law last night where Arnie uh, uh, is in a bad mood and his secretary, Roxanne, says come to my house, I have all the videotapes of Star Trek. And he says, do you have the one with the tribbles? Now, I, that caught me by surprise. I'm watching the episode, I fall out of my chair, and my phone starts nice. ringing immediately. And I go in the next day and tell him, Gene, look at what Star Trek has become. And it, it, he didn't hear it. It, it. it was like, oh, okay. I mean, it was just not, it didn't, he didn't recognize and and uh we began to be and we had a meeting with a writer one day younger than me but he had a beard and jean says points at him and says you could learn a lot from him and and uh as if i'm still a 20-year-old kid and i suddenly realize oh crap jean still sees me and dorothy as those 20-year-old kids from 20 years ago he doesn't realize that we have not only gotten 20 years older too but that we have each piled up significant credits that qualify us both to be producers, and I realized we are in trouble. That was one of my first realizations, we're in trouble. And Eddie Milkus left the show, which I never knew all the details on that, but it was he was first off. He recognized something wasn't going to work, and I think it was because of all of the ins and outs with Leonard Maislis, the lawyer. But Gene's health started going downhill. And then we noticed that Leonard Maslisch was walking around telling us what we could and couldn't write. Oh, you can't do that. It's aesthetically displeasing. Yes, it is. It's supposed to. This is a horror story. We want to shock the audience. Oh, and uh, these two people can't have an argument. Everybody loves each other. If we can't have an argument, we can't do Kirk Spock and McCoy kind of that, that fun. We can't. It, you know, and, and one of the things, everybody who came aboard, said, let's have a Klingon on the bridge. I suggested it, Gene said no. Bob Justman suggested it, Gene said no. And everybody who came aboard after that, was, we started getting new producers and every writer who came in. Why don't we put a Klingon on the bridge? And Gene, and we don't suggest a Klingon on the bridge. Gene has already vetoed it. Okay. So Dorothy comes in to write the pilot script. And that was another cluster or something. Because she, they kept giving her... Back and forth signals, two-hour script, ninety-minute script. Okay, two hour. No, ninety-minute script, and then, and then so she's she you know to structure. So she writes this ninety-minute script, and then Gene takes it away, and comes back with adding thirty minutes, which is Q. Gene adds Q to the entire thing and takes half the credit and half all the residual money, which did not sit well with Dorothy. Of course, and his justification was the studio wants his name on the pilot script, which was not true. We knew it wasn't true. But what Dorothy had written is we had, the ship could split into two parts. That was, so when the ship splits, she puts a woman in command of the family section, where everybody else goes off in the battle section. And it comes back with suddenly there's this new character, Worf, a Klingon, who stays in charge of, if I remember correctly, the family section. And even if he's he's your War. If he's your consigliere, he should be on the other ship. Not the, But no, and, and that didn't sit well with anybody. It's like, wait a minute, we all said Klingon, and he said no, and all of a sudden, instead of leaving a woman in command, we get this Klingon in command that after Gina said no Klingon, and we're wondering where the hell is this coming from, is that we cannot depend on what is said one thing is being true the next day. And it's like I worked for I would say two months, maybe longer on the Bible, three months on the Bible, and and just polishing it and making and almost immediately I can see things are being ignored.
1: Well, th- this gets to something that I think has been always my question about next generation, and particularly that first year and a half, two years that you're yeah, talking that first about. Two years. That. So many times when we hear sort of, you know, fans and all, all the armchair quarterbacking that goes on with Star Trek, and people say, you know, what Star Trek really needs is a Gene Roddenberry. It needs Gene's vision. And I look at the first year and a half of Next Generation, which is very inconsistent there are great moments and there are some bad moments and i say well this was the dream team this was gene roddenberry bob justman david gerald dc fontana but something didn't mesh what something didn't, didn't mash, happen
0: what mm-hmm. didn't mesh is we had three other producers who were put in above dorothy and me dorothy and i both expected to be the showrunners mm-hmm. we would have been mm-hmm. we would have been great co-showrunners mm-hmm. we get along we the practically read each other's minds. You know, we bounce ideas off each other. I have a wild streak. She has the the methodical streak. So we balance each other very well. And all of a sudden, here comes Morris Hurley and Bob Lewin and, and Herb Wright. And Bob Lewin is a great guy. Herb Wright was a really interesting guy. I didn't know Morris Hurley that very well. Um, and none of them had ever worked on Trek. On we had to teach them. And they didn't want to listen. They did, it was like, we don't, and, and all of a sudden, Rick Berman is aboard. And Gene did not like Rick Berman at all. He understood Rick Berman is there to watchdog over Gene and make sure the budget doesn't balloon out of control again. And and so, um, there was a lot of <laughs> jockeying for position, and and everybody who came in and, and, and Morris Hurley has an interesting interview on uh, Bill Shatner's documentary Chaos on the Bridge, which is also about the first two years. And and Morris Hurley said came right out and said nobody knew what was going on, and Gene was a wackadoodle, and I took charge of everything, and and threw out all that other stuff. And I you know and a lot of what you got was Morris Hurley, and I had brought in. Uh, a bunch of writers. Very early on, we they had pitched scripts. They'd gotten assignments. I thought early on, I said, "Look, we have in October. We we are starting in October. Other shows start in May. Right. We could have twenty six scripts ready to go on the start date." Because we're, and so I brought it was bringing in writers and taking pitches. And we when Morris Hurley came along, they all got canceled. Mm-hmm. Every except one, the Diane Dwayne script, where none have gone before. And Morris Hurley did a complete rewrite on it, and it turned into Alice in Wonderland. And and um, all of the rest got cut off. And so, yeah. And what happens, we get to our June 1st start date, and we don't have a single script ready to shoot. And, we, I mean, all that time between October 10th, I start on October 20th, all that time from October to June got pissed away because there was no consistency or coherency of planning and a large part of it i put the blame on the fact that leonard maylesch was taking advantage of gene's failing health and and that we had like at that point four different producers and and by the time we got to, G- to june i was no longer even being told we're having a meeting come sit in on the and i wrote a memo one time you might have it is like seeing as how nobody's reading my memos I, maybe i should stop writing them and two days later, Leonard Maisler showed. oh, we like your memos, David. I said, yeah, you might read them, but you don't listen to what I have to say. And Gene said to me when we started, he says, you're probably going to be one of the most important people on the show because you understand Star Trek better than anybody. He actually said, you may even understand it better than me. And I said, that's very pleasing to hear, Gene, but you're still you know, always going to be the great bird. You have the vision. But um, what happened was the people who knew the show, me and Dorothy and Bob, got pushed aside. And I didn't realize it until I heard later on, Rick Berman, to some degree, hated the original Star Trek and wanted all of the original people gone so he could do the show he wanted to do. That is the way it was explained to me by people who actually had a a close... So it's like Dorothy and I never had a chance to do the Star Trek that Gene had promised us we were going to get to do, is that there were people playing office politics... Now you can take this as David Gerald is a disgruntled ex employee, and maybe there's a certain amount of truth to it. But I, I over here, after 30 people left in the first season and another 30 in the second season, I stopped taking it personally. It wasn't me, and I will say this: I'll go on record. N- leaving Star Trek was one of the better things I ever did in my life. Not because, and I, I miss Star Trek. I would have loved to work, but I I would. Had to reinvent. What am I up to as a writer, as a storyteller, as a producer, dri- whatever? And so I said, I'm going to concentrate on writing the novels that I have promised myself I'm going to write, and I'm going to adopt the little boy that I and because I've been putting that off, and, and you know, and and I'm going to build my own family and have my own life and not have it be defined by Star Trek. And so for me, I consider leaving Star Trek to be one of the better choices in my life. Although at the time it did not feel like it, I felt really unhappy. But throughout the 90s, as I got in touch with, I'm a dad and I'm writing the novels I want to write and I don't have to answer to anybody. I'm discovering my own vision of what's possible in storytelling. That's great. Uh, The other thing is that uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry, Rick Berman uh, Leonard Mazelish apparently issued a fatwa against me I could not get work on any TV series I couldn't even get an agent for 10 years um, and so it's like great, now I have to work on my novels and short <laughs> stories and, and essays and columns and whatever but uh, uh, nobody would ever cop to it I never got anybody to cop to it directly but there were uh, Susan Sackett uh, in her book Came out and said so, and then um, when I wrote a congratulatory uh, congratulations to Jerry Taylor on B, on on Voyager, she wrote me back a note saying, "Oh, you're not welcome here," and uh, um, and I wrote back to her said, "I don't want to write on Star Trek. Yeah. I'm just saying, congratulations, you have custody of the of the, of the franchise. Go do good." And uh, uh, so it, it was very clear to me that. Uh, uh, you know, I had been, there's no official blacklist, but I'd been blacklisted for a while. And because uh, what happened was when I left Trek, uh, um, my agent calls me and says, what, what is this story that you were fired from Star Trek? I said, I wasn't fired. I left because I had this opportunity over at Columbia to develop this other thing. And I wasn't happy on Star Trek. And and, uh, Columbia was an opportunity to get out from under. He says, well, but they're saying you're fired. What did you do over there? They're saying you never did anything worthwhile. So I walk in with my entire stack of stuff. And Gene was saying to the audience, he was pissed. He was saying, David never wrote anything useful. Well, some of the audition scenes I wrote got into the pilot script. That he shoved them into the pilot script. So my agent looks at this huge stack of stuff. Says, we're going to the guild they take it to the guild. The guild looks at it and says, you did producer-level work. You're entitled to that payment. And the guild goes to the studio and says, uh, um, we would like you to pay David Gerald for this. Oh, and by the way, we have evidence here that this fellow, Leonard Maislish, has been rewriting scripts. He's not a member of the Writers Guild. You're in violation of the guild rules. And and Leonard Maislish was banned from the lot immediately. He, he, the security guard's Packed up his stuff. Frog marched him off the lot. Um, I know this because I got thank you calls. For it. I didn't do it. The Guild did it. <laughs> um, the, and and I've never heard anybody say a nice word about Leonard Maisel. She managed to uh, alienate. He bragged that he liked doing evil to people. He liked hurting people.
1: Well, I mean, it sounds like that's the, the key thing that, that wrecked a lot of relationships yeah. that Jean had
0: with, Gene had with
1: people on the show. Gene
0: was in tears one day, all my friends have left me. I don't understand why, and he did not realize that Leonard Maislish had been like iago had had gone behind had 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 been Jean's bad guy. Well, yeah, you want your lawyer there to to do the unpleasant work for you, but Leonard Maislish had gone way beyond what was acceptable, even in Hollywood, which is to say a lot. I mean, when, when, I mean, people expect there's a certain amount of chicanery in the business because it's a business based on glamour, power, money, and illusion. But there's a gentleman's agreement that once you make a deal, you keep your word. There was a thing that happened one day where they had a meeting. They called in all the producers. And Gene said, we're over budget. You're all going to have to take a pay cut. And the producers got up and left, and like five minutes later, the phones were ringing all over legal, (laughs) from agents calling, saying, you signed a contract, you're not cutting my... That was the end of that conversation, but that was Gene's lawyer trying to, you know... And Gene was making an awful lot of money, he didn't have to do that, and the show could have been managed, it didn't need six producers... The original Star Trek, we had Gene, we had Gene L. Coon, we had Dorothy Fontana. You had your exec, you had your line producer, your, your uh, showrunner, you had your line producer, on the uh, Bob Justman, on the soundstage, making that work, and you had your story editor. That's all you really need for a great show. And then you, you let your freelancers bring in ideas that you would never think of in a million years. That's how Tribbles got sold. Uh, the way Star Trek was run with all staff writers... The opportunity to do things out of the ordinary to stretch the show disappears, um, and this is true of all TV shows. They're all staff-written these days, so uh, the idea that hey, here's this wild idea that this guy, this freelancer, brought in, doesn't happen anymore.
1: When did you decide that you'd had enough? I mean, what what kind of finally pushed you?
0: It was blood and fire. My script. Yeah. And here's Gene has, has, had promised the fans I was there. We were both invited to a Star Trek convention in Boston in November. The invitation had gone out before they knew there was going to be a new Star Trek. But we keep our word. We go to this convention. Of course, 3,000 people show up because they expect Gene to talk about the new Star Trek. And he says, we haven't even gotten into our offices yet. We, have it. we can't even talk about what we're going to do because we don't even have an office where we can plan it yet. But he's being very gracious to the fans. And one of the fans asks, will there be gay characters? It's 1986, November of 86. And because and, uh, uh, you've, you know, you've had black and Asian and, and, and so on. And, you, and isn't it time we saw a gay character? And Gene, to his credit, said, you know, you're right. It's time we saw a gay crew member. And I'm making notes and i yeah, right. <laughs> you know, because I know how American television works. But uh, all right, let's see what happens. And uh, w- uh, about a month later, we're in a meeting and we're actually talking about characters and Gene says, we're probably going to have to put a gay crew member aboard. And Bob Justman says, what, Lieutenant Tutti Frutti? And Gene balled him out. He says, no, stop that. And uh, 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 He says, no, it's it's time. So I'm thinking, I want to do this script about the fear of AIDS. It isn't even about AIDS. It's about the fear of AIDS. So here's this ship that's been infected with a disease that's so awful, we're supposed to blow it up rather than run the risk of infection. There's no way to rescue. But we don't discover this until after our away team is over there. So we're going to break the rules and attempt a rescue. Because as it happens, that ship, they might have the cure and along the way as we're bringing people back we run out of artificial blood and we need blood donors and i and the speech is you know we need blood donors and and bam you know 500 people are lined up to donate blood and and to me that was one of the most noble things i had ever tried to put into a script. Now remember, this is nineteen eighty six. We would do it differently today. I mean we have thirty years, forty years of of uh perspective and, and everybody has twenty, twenty hindsight. And I've seen fans writing their little essays about uh well I read it and blah blah blah. And of course they're writing it with thirty years of hindsight, you know, with with thirty years of Next Generation and Voyager and in Deep Space Nine, whatever. To compare it to. But at the time, we didn't know what the new Star Trek was going to be. And we were, and I was trying, this is what I, what I think would work. No, we didn't have any scripts yet to polish. And, um, so, and all we have of Blood and Fire is a first draft. So I turn it in and go off on a cruise. At the cruise, I get a telegram from Gene. Everybody loves your script. Have a great time. Very generous of him. Uh, I get back from the Star Trek cruise, and there's this message. I get back, uh, I guess Sunday night, Monday, whatever. And there's this message. Oh, by the way, on the plane back, we're, and I'm sitting in, in, next to Majel, and Majel says, "Is Gene all right? Everybody, what am I going to say? To is, so, no, we're, we're we think something's going weird. Hmm. I, I I just maybe I should have said, no, we're there's weird stuff, but. You know, because I I like Majel, but what should I say? Should I tell stories out of school? But I got it. She was genuinely concerned because she was seeing things at home. Anyway, but I get back. There's this message on my machine from Dorothy. Don't say anything. Don't talk to anyone until you talk to me. Turns out there's been this uproar over Blood and Fire. And I look at the. I get into my office and I look at all the memos. And here's Bob Justman saying uh, one thing, and Morris Hurley saying another, and and and. But the killer memo. The one that really hurt was Rick Berman, who had said we should do a script about AIDS, is now saying we're going to be on at 4 o'clock in the afternoon someplace. Mommies are going to write letters. So I write a memo that says, Gene made a promise. If we don't do it here, where are we going to do it? If we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? Now, by the way, all I had in the script was there's these two guys and... Riker says to one, how long have you two been together? And the other one says, since the Academy. And that's it. That's the only part where you you know, nothing more than that. And, and, and then, of course, later on, the, the one who survives is, has gone a little crazy, and he wants to, and, and we have this confrontation on the bridge where we find out what has really been going on. Uh, I thought it was a good script uh because it got to it it got to what Star Trek had to be. There was an issue, there was a personal dilemma and there was the scientific thing and there was the, the, the Starfleet dilemma. There was the you know, the, the political dilemma. So there was, there were all the different things and I thought it had done for a first draft I thought and I hadn't even set out to put gay characters in. It just happened in the writing that that was what it needed. It wasn't even in the outline. It just happened in the script. Here's all this uproar. And Herb Wright sticks his head in my office. I don't even get called into a meeting about the script, which is rude. Herb Wright said, he says, that was a great memo, the one I wrote. If not now, when? If not here, where? Great memo. You still have to take the gay characters out. Okay. <laughs> so I replace one of them with Tasha Yar. Which is good because it's something else for Denise to do. And, and you know, Denise is a wonderfully talented woman. And I, I've worked with her. I love her. I, I, I can't say enough nice things about her. She shows up on time. She knows her dialogue. Uh, you, she delivers it in one take. If you have to do a second take, it's for insurance or because somebody else screwed up. But you never have. I mean, Denise delivers. So, I you know, I gave it to Denise because we hadn't done enough with Tasha Yar. And then it goes back and forth. And then Herb Wright is going to do a rewrite. And then, and I, and I, and I already know I'm going to leave the show. And I go into Gene's office one day and I say, look, Herb's got seven things on his plate. Let me do the rewrite. I'm not going to charge you for it. Let me just do it for you. Make sure you have a good script. Gene says, wonderful. If Herb says, okay, then go ahead. So, the elevator was very slow. So, I run up four flights of stairs. I can't do that anymore, but I could do it then. <laughs> <clears throat> and as I walk into Herb Wright's office, he's on the phone, and he says, okay, yes, yes, all right, thank you, Gene, and hangs up. And he looks at me and says, I won't lie for anybody. That was Gene. He told me to say no. It's okay. Wow. Because I'd already talked no. to Herb and I'd said Herb, I'll offer to do the rewrite, and Herb had said, "Yeah, it's fine with me if it's okay with Gene." So I go downstairs, tell Gene, go back upstairs. So it was like, okay, um, and that was the final straw. It's like if I cannot trust Gene Roddenberry to tell me the truth, yeah. and it hurt because I thought after 20 years, and I was, Gene, you know, I stayed in touch with Gene when nobody else was calling him. When he was off in Siberia, because the studio had exiled him, when everybody else assumed he was a, a has-been, said, well, they took Gene off Star Trek, he's done. When everybody else assumed that Gene was just this relic that the studio was being polite to, I stayed in touch with him because I liked him. And it hurt to be lied to. Yeah. It hurt. Um, you know, Gene would call me, teach me how to use my new computer. I'd go over. It's like, you know, and I, and I always if Gene because I felt not only that I owed it to him because Star Trek had given me this great start. Uh, God knows where I'd been without that great, you know, it, you know, launch. But um, I I actually admired Gene for being this unconditional visionary that. He would never give up his idea that we could be better. Now, maybe he was just giving the speech. But you know what? He gave that speech better than anybody <laughs> I knew, except perhaps Harvey Milk. Um, and and you could, you, I loved him for that. I still love that part of him. That as an executive producer, as a person who managed people, his competency wasn't up to his, his reach exceeded his grasp. And, and, uh, which was a, the, I think the biggest disappointment any of us had with Gene is that he could inspire us, but he couldn't quite deliver on the promises of, of managing us as a, as a team. Cause we were, you know, we were on the team ready to be there, whatever the team needed, but he wouldn't let us, or maybe it was Leonard Mazlish, but we weren't allowed to be the team. And if you look at what happened afterward, the team was never felt like a team and and when Rick Berman was in charge, writers weren't even allowed to visit the set and meet the actors. And I will tell you, that has to be the stupidest decision. One of the reasons why Tribbles turned out so well is I was on the set listening to the actors' speech patterns, watching how they interacted as characters, even getting to know them as people and understanding what they were great at to play to that. And being able to have that relationship with the actors and to be able to walk the set and to pick up a prop and to, and to even have the director say, you know, Mark Daniels would say something to me or this or that. I love Mark Daniels. Uh, that's your on-the-job training on how to do the series, on to have a relationship with the show that makes you understand that what you are doing creates jobs for 150 other people. And that if you make this decision, red or blue, you are determining somebody else's job. And you want to get their input back. If, the, if, if Matt Jeffrey said to me one day, he says, we can't shoot tribbles. I said, what do you mean we can't shoot It's too expensive. You have this set and that set. I can't afford to give you both sets. Do you know how much a foot of corridor costs? I says, what if I combine both of those into one set and I can combine the two different actors into... So we had a trading post in the bar became one set the two different actors became one actor, and suddenly the, the script got better. That would not have happened except that Matt Jeffries told me. So not having access to the people who actually roll up their sleeves and do the physical labor is is crippling your writers. Your writers are, are, are research machines. And, and that's what... When I heard that particular story, I thought... Well, gee, why not shoot yourself in the other foot, too? If you're not going to let writers visit the, the soundstage, why not shoot yourself in the head? So, anyway, but I, the day that Gene lied to me, I went out to lunch with Dorothy and Herb, the three of us, and I said, what should I do? They said, you can't stay. I said, all right, I'm gone. Talk me through
1: your last day on the production.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, there's a story I love to share. We, we were starting to, we had the sets. And we had the beautiful bridge set. It looked like the lobby, the lobby of the Ramada Inn, but it was. It's a beautiful set, and and it wasn't what I would have designed because it was a little too pleasant. Because it's, it, it has to say this is a working environment, but man, I, you know, it's still a gorgeous set. And they had this big view screen, and they had hung this giant sheet of black paper, and this prop men had poked little holes in it and had lights behind it for the stars and they pointed a camera at it to see what it would how it would photograph because you do these tests and one of the prop men was off you couldn't see him rippling the corner so that all the stars would twinkle and now i missed watching dailies on the big screen but what we were getting now is a huge TV screen, like a thirty-four inch TV screen, set up in the trailer, and you could go in and pop the VCR in and 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 watch what the. And I was like, "All right, whatever." Which to me is not the way you watch dailies. Dailies should be watched by everybody together. But anyway, so we have these first dailies of what this is going to look like, and we, and there's about thirty people in the trailer, producers grips costume of everybody uh not gene uh maybe rick Berman. i don't remember and this was like one of the and i go in and i and i'm sitting way at the back and everybody say, boy those stars twinkle good yeah, yeah those stars twinkle good over here in this corner i like the twinkling saying, this twink, good twinkle I said yeah that works and everybody has to speak up at some point or other and they all and after a while there's this silence and we're watching twinkle, twinkle, tw- little star Right? And no sound and finally I say, you do realize of course in the vacuum of space the stars don't twinkle <laughs> and now there's absolute silence in the room and finally somebody says you know he's right those stars shouldn't be twinkling somebody else says, yeah, David's right those stars should not be twinkling yeah that was that those stars should not be twinkling, yeah, I agree with David those stars and it goes around the room, and I keep hearing, yeah, David's right, <laughs> and I realize this is what's going to be missing from Star Trek is that I'm one of the few people who actually has a scientific background, who actually has the science fiction background and that while everybody else is great at doing what their jobs are the fact is that if somebody had said we got to have the stars twinkling and if i had been functioning as a, a showrunner early on say, why do we have to have the stars twinkle they don't twinkle in space and we wouldn't have had to sit through 20 minutes of gosh those stars twinkle good so that was a, a clue to me that we were that there was a large piece of the puzzle missing See, I—I I mean, I recognize television is television, and there are certain compromises you make. You compress time, you cheat, you have to sometimes go to science fiction double talk because you're in the business of telling a story, and the audience will go along with it if you can, if you're grounded in believability. They'll let you stretch it a little bit. It's television, but there's a like there's this gray area there's this boundary area that if you go past it, the audience goes, well, this isn't science fiction anymore it's just they're just jerking us off so and unfortunately, I think that was part of the resignation that the fans felt. The fans wanted a the great new Star Trek that was promised, what they got was. A lot of props and costumes and special effects. But where they were disappointed was in the quality of the writing and the storytelling. And if you go back and you look at the reviews and you look at what was on... Well, most of it's been lost. But if you could remember what was on CompuServe and all the bulletin boards and, and all of the fanzines from the uh, first two years of Star Trek Next Generation, what the the overlying theme is disappointment. And And I didn't say anything. For years, Gene was, the the official line was, David Gerald is this disgruntled, bitter ex-employee. And I wasn't saying anything. People would come to me and say, what's going on over there? i said, say, oh, I don't know. And, but the official line was, I was the one spreading all these terrible rumors. And and finally, it got to, you know, David Gerald is leaking all these rumors onto CompuServe. And finally, the people running the CompuServe forum had to write a, a note David isn't telling us anything. David is refusing to tell us anything. David's room only comment is no comment. Your soundstage and your offices leak like a steel sieve. It is not coming from David. It's coming from Bump and Bump and Bump. They didn't name names. But we knew who was leaking. It wasn't me. But I was taking the blame for a few years and it hurt. There was there were Star Trek Conventions who withdrew their invitations to me because they I was the official enemy. I said, Fine, I don't care, you know. And and uh, I stopped going to conventions for a few years, and uh, then all of a sudden people said, "Oh my gosh, you write science fiction too?" No, I write science fiction first. Um, I, I I got appointed this generation's Harlan Ellison. You know, well, no, I'm not. I'm David <laughs> Gerald. I have my own, you know, I have my own curmudgeonliness. I don't have to borrow Harlan. I, by the way, I'm seeing Harlan later tonight. Harlan is one of my Harlan's my big brother. And I love him, like, you know, he, he's one of the guys who, if he talks the talk, you can count on him to walk the walk. And so, a lot of what Harlan's complaints about Star Trek were, um, yeah, the City on the Edge of Forever script, he wrote, couldn't have been shot as he wrote it. But um, his complaints were about the Cavalier treatment. So it was not just Next Gen. It wasn't just uh, uh, Leonard Mayslish. There was some stuff going on on the original series. Um, I wasn't behind the scenes there, so anything I've heard is 2nd nature- is a sec- hearsay so. evidence. Yeah. I'm sorry, I- we should have been much more happy about it. I actually have yeah. to say, there were times, I, and I really have to <clears throat> say this, there were times, especially in the very early days, when we did not know And when it was still an unformed vision, our enthusiasm, we were having so much fun. It was an incredible amount of fun. And I wish that the show that eventually got produced had lived up to the vision that had been promised in the early days. Uh, Because it was fun to be part of that at the beginning.
2: I want to ask you a question about that vision. There's this thing that we have heard when we started going into uh, next gen. Gene Roddenberry didn't want any fighting in Starfleet. That was fine for other things, but we've sort of gotten to the top of the hill at this point as far as I don't know humanity or the federation or whatever you want to say. This I, thing I that think we've always that
0: been that was more Leonard Mezlish than Gene. I think Gene still understood that real drama comes from the conflict between two people and if our and that people have different perspectives and people are going to argue about different solutions. So, but Leonard Maislis was the one walking around saying, our people can't argue with each other. Hmm. Oh, all right. Well, that was exciting. But anyway, is there more to your question? I apologize for interrupting.
2: No, I think that's it.
0: Yeah. I, I, blame, I, 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 will, I will do this. Gene gave great inspirational speeches, and if that all he did, it would, you know. The thing is, he gave us Star Trek. He had, there's more impact on our culture than anything else in the history of media that Star Trek... You know, uh, uh, in its own way, Star Trek has been bigger than the Beatles. That mitigates a lot. It really does. To be able to create something so powerful, it mitigates a lot. Those of us who were lucky enough to be part of that that adventure, it has changed our lives. It's changed my life. It made me a better person to be part of Star Trek because... Here's this vision of what humanity could be. The, we get along. We, 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 there's no more discrimination or prejudice or stupidity. It's like, yeah, uh, it's a world that works for everyone with no one and nothing left out. I am, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I'm in favor of that. Where I get frustrated is that people came aboard the show who weren't there to be part of that vision. They were there. How much money can I make? They were there as, how much fame can I get? How much, you know, uh, uh, there were people there for the wrong reasons and who didn't share Gene's vision. And if, if we could have been aligned on the vision, and if we could have had the team like we had with Gene L. Coon, if we could have had that team, we would have had the Star Trek that, because uh, back in the 60s when we had Star Trek, we went to the moon. If we could have had that Star Trek again, we'd have been on Mars by now because that was the inspiration Star Trek represented to the world.
1: I just got one last thing that I want to talk about real quick. Um, When Blood and Fire then was reformatted and produced independently –
0: yeah, that was funny. 20, yeah. I kept getting these calls from Jim's colleague, and I kept hanging up on him, and Dorothy Fontana <laughs> said, no, no, talk to him. Because <laughs> I just did a script with Walter Koenig, and it turned out very well. I said, so, oh, all right. So I talked to Colley, and he says, I want to do you to do a script for us. And I said, I don't want to write another Star Trek script. I got books to write. He says, no, can I do Blood and Fire? No, I said to him, do you want blood? I'll give you Blood and Fire. He says, yeah, well, that's the one I want. And he said, do you want to rewrite it for Kirk and Spock? I said, I don't want to go near it. Have your guy rewrite it. And Carlos Pedraza took it and turned it into Kirk and Spock and kept a lot of the relationship. A lot of the relationships worked much better with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And uh, uh, Callie sends me the script. I read it. All right, fine. Go shoot it. And he says, don't you want to do a rewrite on it? I said, no. And, and he says... Uh, uh, really? And I said, "All right. Well, there is one line we would never say that in classic Star Trek. It's just wrong. I don't remember what the line was. It just leapt off the page." And, he, and I said, "All right, I'll I'll fix the, the the well." So I rolled it into the machine. Right. Next thing I know, I've done a complete page one rewrite because Carlos has set up all these wonderful things that he hasn't used so he's got a, a, a battle with the Romulans at the beginning well okay you why do you want to have a battle why are we at war I said I'm going to change it to the Klingons and then I'm going to bring the Klingons back at the end because I can do this punchline of I'll give you a chance to make peace so that we're it's not about going to war it's about making peace is that yeah, because that's what Star Trek's about and then I look at and and James says look on the we want to keep the gay characters I said good because otherwise I wouldn't let you do it because I was, you know, it's like Star Trek had the opportunity to be the first show to in, in put a gay character in 1987, and now Star Trek still hasn't done it, and everybody else has. And um, and so Star Trek, you know, and and from what I hear from people who are connected to the show, it's never going to happen because of the attitudes of certain people. So.
1: All
0: right. So, so you're going to keep the gay character? He says, Yeah, but I want one of them to be Kirk's nephew. And I think about that I said, alright, all right, fine. And then I start get into it and I realize we realize, you know, we have to go farther. This is uh two thousand and seven. This is twenty years later. We we have to and I said, Well, he wants to marry his, his boyfriend. He wants to marry his partner. And he has to go to Captain Kirk and say, Will you marry us? And I said, That's the scene. So, alright, so so It gave us this great scene where Peter Kirk goes to uh, 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 Captain Kirk and says, uh, you haven't put me on the mission team. That means you're being protective of me. And I'm going to have to ask for a transfer. And so will my husband. Kirk goes, husband? Yes, if you'll marry us. And, and, and marry you, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and then say, so, okay, I'll put you on the the mission team, go get your gear. And he turns to Spock and says, am I the only one who didn't know? And Spock says, I, I think Mr. Scott was too busy to know this, <laughs> which is it's it, to play the scene. And we, we went, and by now it has been decided that I'm going to direct it because I'm the only one who knows this well enough to, and so I, and, and, um, uh, and and I I uh, go in and tell James Colley and Bobby Quinn Rice who's just marvelous to work with both of them, and 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 I say this is the only place where you, I want you to do the Shatner imitation, and so the two of them go off and practice doing the dialogue as Shatner as they believe Shatner would do it because Bobby Quinn Rice then has this wonderful scene where the the boyfriend Lieutenant uh, Freeman says well what did your what did Captain Kirk say and he says, and so Bobby Quinn Rice does the the parody he says husband. Mary with the hand gestures like Shatner would. So the two of them were off at the end of the corridor with this beautiful uh, set rehearsing how to do the dialogue as Shatner would. And I'm falling down laughing I wish we had gotten that on the blooper reel So you get the scene where where uh, Peter Kirk says it to it tells Captain Kirk and then you get a scene later on where he tells uh, uh, Lieutenant Freeman what his uh, uh, what the conversation went with Captain Kirk and, but the amazing thing that happened as we develop this story is that it is not about the relationship between Peter Kirk and Lieutenant and, and Alex. It is about um, the relationship between Peter Kirk and Captain Kirk, because it all comes down to the fact that Peter Kirk wants to stop being Captain Kirk's nephew and be Ensign Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. And which to me, of all the things we did in that episode, we had a lot of different plot lines going. A lot of stuff. And we had only ten days to shoot it. But we managed to get every shot we needed. Um, It all fit together because it all comes down to this one scene at the end where uh, Freeman has been killed by this infection. And and, uh, Peter Kirk and Captain Kirk are watching the other ship burn up and Captain Kirk says um, in the old days you would put the warrior on his boat and light it on fire and you couldn't ask for a better send off and they look at the ship burn up and they say Godspeed Mikhail Hodel named after Mike Hodel, an old friend Godspeed Alex Freeman Godspeed and it's one of the most moving funeral scenes. It's one of the most moving scenes I've ever written because it's about love and loss and redemption. And to me, it was like this is the kind of Star Trek I always wanted to write, where we feel empowered and inspired. And and it it you know it's on YouTube, Blood and Fire, and it's it's a two hour. We did it as a two parter, and it has a perfect Star Trek ending because it wasn't a disease that infected people. It was a disease of a larger organism called a sparkle dancer, which we get to see at the end. Um, And and the thing that I'm so proud of is not just that we got to do a great job, but there's this incredible cast and crew, all fans, all volunteering their time and energy, rebuilt the original sets down to the millimeter. Costumes, props, special effects, and their passion and enthusiasm and commitment and, and James Collie had that that spirit and vision and enthusiasm. Everybody shows up to work their asses off, and it's it's the kind of team you want to have on a sound stage. It's the kind of production team you want to have, and the whole thing that commitment, enthusiasm, passion, and, and morale that was great. That was. That was, the way, that was the way Star Trek should be produced. Now, I'll tell you one other story. Do it's it. A lot shorter. We're, we've redressed the Bridge of the Enterprise to be the destroyed Bridge of the Copernicus. And I'm, we've got about 30 people working, getting this, the, ready for the shot. And I'm explaining to the actors now, the bloodworms do this and this and this. And this little voice from the back, this little girl goes, Excuse me, Mr. Gerald, but that's not canon. And there's this silence. <laughs> I remember the si- and everybody's turning to me, and I say, "I made up the bloodworms. They'll do any damn thing I tell them to do." <laughs> so. But I mean, really, the the affection that fans have for Star Trek, nobody matches that nowhere. Because it's not just it's not just we're fans of a TV show. It's we're fans of a vision. And it is Gene's vision, and I give him credit for that.
1: David, I wish we could do this all day. Yeah, but we could. We gotta, we gotta but we got to stop at some I point. Have, I have you, you have
0: a to life to lead. lead. I have to go hang out with Harlan Ellison. What a oh, horrible day no. I'm having. First I have it's to talk sad. about Star Trek, then I have to go hang out with Harlan <laughs> Ellison. Oh, my gosh.
2: Ken? Ken, we good? How is he doing?
0: Uh, he, Harlan is doing great. I saw him last week. Uh, yeah he's a little frail uh he'll be frail at my funeral too um. <laughs> so uh but his spirit is is unbreakable, which is is I hope when i you know when I reach that age, which will be in ten years, that I'm as unbreakable.
1: From the Roddenberry Archive, let's take a closer look at a discovered document. So we've got a new feature on the Mission Log Supplemental, a little bit different. You know that we've done discovered documents throughout the regular Mission Log show, but something keeps happening... That we keep getting more documents. We keep discovering more and more documents. And we're trying to figure out what to do with them all. Because sometimes they're relevant to an episode. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just interesting to serve as background for the production of Star Trek. So this kicks off what I hope will be a long-running segment on the Mission Log Supplementals. We get to welcome a friend of mine and I'm sure somebody that pretty much everybody in our audience knows by name. Larry Nemechek. uh, Or should I call you Dr. Trek?
3: Oh, I thought it was going to be like Edward Snowden or something. <laughs> with
1: all, yeah. Calling with in from the... his bunker in Russia. We have more
3: documents, Russia. more documents. Right, no. right. No, no, thank you, John. This is this is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on, and hopefully we'll, we'll enjoy deep diving these documents. Yeah,
1: well, this is something that Rod kind of wanted us to do because it, it, it's weird. It's like every month or so, a truckload shows up of new documents and somebody's got to go through them and figure them out. And we thought, you know, better that we just take them as they come. And if there's something interesting, talk about it and put it on the website. So that's what we're doing. And I wanted to kick things off with one that I thought was really interesting. So today's memo is, I I feel like it needs a little bit of a background, a little bit of an introduction from me because I, I haven't done this very often. But every now and then we have a memo that I feel like I really want to publish, but we also need to redact some of the information in there. And the reason is this. they, the
3: in- and, re- and by redact, we mean good old Nixon, uh, you know, yep. uh, we, we mean uh, CIA documents with the black marks through the lines. Right, right,
1: right. right. And, uh, and even under pain of torture, I will not reveal my sources or the information contained <laughs> therein. Um, but, but the deal is this um, – you and I definitely, and I and I think the vast majority of the people listening to this show, we are fans and we're respectful of the show and we're respectful of the people in the show. And it doesn't make sense to present information that could just come across as embarrassing to somebody who worked there. Um, now, all that said, the the context of what we're talking about, I think, is very interesting, and that's why it mm-hmm. needs to be shared. So today, what we have is absolutely yeah yeah. So today, what we have is a memo from Bob Justman to Gene Roddenberry, written in July of 1987. So this would have been early in the filming of season two, correct? No, Um, sorry,
3: season one. This is. I was just checking. This is Encounter at Farpoint, filmed from May 29th to July to June 25th. Okay. So uh, this is.
1: You're within the first few episodes. Right.
3: The last day, well, yeah, Naked Now was the second episode, and it finished filming on July 11th. So this was as the second episode was wrapping up. Oh, wow. Okay, so... So we're early bird,
1: yes. Very early. And (laughs) and what we have is Bob Jossman sending a memo to Gene saying, hey, (laughs) I was on set the other day, and one of the actors... And I'm using that in the gender neutral version. One of the actors came up to me and said, I don't like a line that I am being uh, told to say here. And, and I think that I should change it. And I think it would be better if I changed it. Right. And when Bob said, eh, no, I don't think so. I think you should just say the line as it is. This person then sort of turned it around and said, OK, well, look, I'm just going to have to call Gene. <laughs> and, and what i love here this is so great bob who i have said many times before and i know that you agree with me bob, mm-hmm. bob justman could turn a phrase the man could write a memo and he could. it would be funny and so on the nose and he starts out the third paragraph he says now i know i'm just another stupid producer <laughs> but even a stupid producer knows when he's being threatened um so rather than create an unnecessary confrontation, I agreed to the line change. However, and we'll we'll just sort of go on from there. And basically what it comes down to is he's asking Gene for a change in policy that says that line changes mm-hmm. will not be made unless they are approved by either Bob or Rick. So Right. Or, and, Gene. Uh, or Gene. Or Gene. Or right, Jean. Right, right. And he's saying to Gene, can you please look, I I want to make this the least uncomfortable as I can. So if you can send out a memo to that effect to everybody, not, not just singling out this person, but if you send it out to everybody, then they will know that either you or I, or Rick Berman will have the authority to approve or disapprove a line change. I love this.
3: Right. <laughs> well, with that. Well, this is this is your workplace harassment, and this is your <laughs> this is where it's not so much about a TV show as it is. This is how a functioning body has to work. Yeah, yeah. And notice that he also says not just the cast. He says uh, the assistant directors and the script supervisor. Right. Right. Good old yeah. Cosmo for years and years and years. So the guy with the script book who's prompting them and the ADs and the cast. So it's like, let's, know, let's, uh, let's let everybody know about this. Right. So nobody's, nobody's getting uh, the shine on anybody else trying to pull a fast one.
1: It's the most politic way to do this and, and still be able to put your foot down. And that comes from a guy who's been in the business for a long time and has probably dealt with an actor or two or an ego or two that maybe just felt well, a little out of line.
3: Bob Justman was i will go and say this over and over and over again on the original series, and then you go back and I got this into the Companion because he shared with me a sheaf of his memos mm-hmm. when I was writing the companion It was one of the high it saved my butt at the early part of writing that on on such a short deadline, but he was uniquely for the- it's like the inverse as much creativity he contributed, and as much. Oil and lubrication to all the gears of the show around him on both the acting side and the production side on on prep stage and post he was really he was he should have had a much higher title than he did on the original series and he got that his his year on next generation, which was kind of like to prove the world wrong that this was going to make it, but he was wearing himself out again you know as an older man so he for the amount of guff that he was taking and contributing, and to get as little credit over the years, you know, undercredited—that's been one of my soapboxes to get this man. Thing. Plus, yes, he wrote hell of an—you know—his memos are incredibly, oh, yeah. incredibly funny. You know, like see, line twelve, scene fifteen on page nine, maybe want to go home and hurt my wife. Yes, you know, that's yes, that's yes. one of the famous yes. ones. But y'all know this. Yeah. Um yeah. But but again, he's very—he's a class act, also. Yeah. And yes. he's come up with this. Um, and I love how he says, uh, you have to back us up on this. Otherwise, we'll end up with the inmates running the asylum. Right, right,
1: right. And, and running a TV show from week to week feels like an asylum. I'm sure.
2: sure. I'm sure. You yeah. Know?
1: Um, the thing that I also like here is it, it shows you a little bit about that structure behind the scenes. So here, here's Gene sitting in the office and not really being down on set that much, but, but kind of being the mastermind behind all of this. And then here's Bob Jossman and Rick Berman, really seemingly like the day-to-day producers, the guys who are on the set making sure that it all happens, making sure that all the people are in place and all the things are happening to make sure that the show works at the end of the day. But it also shows you that impression that people have that like, well... Okay, Rick and Bob may be here running things, but we know mm-hmm. who's here we can kind of bend. We, we know that when mom says no, we'll go to dad. When dad says no, we'll go to grandma. Well, you know, it's right. this, this playing against each other. Um, but then it just took their cooperation to kind of uh, kind of settle that.
3: And this is – let's just remember. This is this is the baby days. Yeah, the sh- yeah, yeah. The show has only been out a year. It was – as we know from watching the episodes, it was very much not a runaway hit. They had their contracts, but there was still a lot of growing and settling and evolving, and the production was fairly settled. The writing was anything but. Right. Uh, and this is early. This is the second episode. And Rick we, – we were sitting here tossing off Bob and Rick, Bob and Rick, but yeah. Rick – um, Eddie Milkus had started through the production, the pre production time, and s- just before the pilot uh, started to film was when uh, he backed off and, and said, Okay, I'm, I'm really retiring. This is wearing me out. And uh, Gene reached out, had met Rick as the studio guy who was overseeing the show and said, Hey, come aboard the show. And he did. So it's not like Rick was the Rick Berman we think of today. Right. You know, the uh, overseer. Of all things, Trek for almost twenty years. Right uh, from the throne there in the Cooper Building, so uh, he's he's still a junior boy here too, and and Bob is very much the senior producer producer on the show. Yeah. So um, yeah.
1: yeah, very cool. I, I just I, I love seeing anything from Bob Jossman, and I love that little <laughs> peek. I love that little peek into the uh, the backstage to see maybe what the the egos were like mm-hmm. at play and uh, and and how to run a successful show even when you feel like it's getting away from you.
3: And you know, in a, in an era, this is a little bit like uh, the the Burns documentaries where they worry about you know you can do a Civil War documentary with letters and all that dramatic reading, but what the hell are we going to do a hundred years from now when everything was email and digital and right, <laughs> tweets right. and Facebook posts and. You read a Bob Justman memo, and you remember that in the '60s, especially, yeah. but even even early next generation, uh, and they were, they did it all up to the time I came over and then did the later series, but still it 's like the art of the well written memo right. It's right. like it's just – it almost like – I don't want to say it. It almost makes me painful, but to see something written out in full sentences and paragraphs, <laughs> right. like they're like, like, like Bob's got a PhD in philosophy or something. But no, right. it's just people wrote in full sentences, and they wrote in full paragraphs. And of course he would have – they would have dictaphones, and they would trans, you know, transcribe things for their assistants to type out. But, sure. but just sure. the fact that this is uh, not a bleep and a bloop. You know, on, on a scratch on the side of a page, it's a fully written memo. Um, that's the thing to behold. And it almost makes me cry that we've come so far now that, um, yeah. you know, because, you know, this was one of 40 billion thing, you know, excuse me, one of 47 billion things. <laughs> right. Oh, good. Good. He had to do this day. Like yeah. the last thing he wanted to do was referee something. But he's he's right. He says, let's let's nip this in the bud here before it uh, before it gets crazy.
1: Right. Right. Well, Larry, thank you so much again for joining us today. And uh, remember, friends, that you can find Larry, a.k.a. Dr. Trek, at his website, LarryNemichek.com, and also at TrekLandBlog.com and uh, you can also follow him at Larry Nemechek on Twitter and please remember to like Larry Nemechek's Trekland on Facebook Uh, you will also find the Trekland Trunk Facebook page where you can find all kinds of cool stuff from Larry's archives uh, for collectors and don't forget to support his documentary film The Con of Wrath at theconofwrath.com So after we recorded the show and we recorded this uh, a a few weeks ago, but uh, we recently learned that Grace Lee Whitney passed away. And um, Ken, it's been a little bit of a rough year for uh, friends in the Star Trek family. Uh, So this was another one that was um, sad and, and unexpected that uh, Grace Lee Whitney, who of course played Yeoman Rand in uh, season one of the original series is no longer with us. I, I, always remember seeing her at conventions Mm -hmm. just sort of you could hear her from down the aisle (laughs) you know because (laughs) there was always activity at her table and and she was very sort of uh warm and gregarious and would just talk to anybody about anything yeah a lot of fun
2: um, one one of our—I uh, don't know if I should mention him by name or not—but one of our uh, most ardent listeners, I would say, actually had his head taken off by Grace Lee Whitney at the last uh, convention in Las Vegas. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he man. did. And what's really cool is they ended up talking very friendly. They ended up having a having a, a you know a decent a decent time in their conversation, but they had no shrinking violet. No, I would I, I, w- I would say
1: she she had what you could describe as a very colorful life. Yeah. And certainly Star Trek was a sort of a small chapter within that. And it's interesting because within Star Trek it was always one of those what could have been storylines, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. she was gone kind of prematurely. But it was cool that she popped back in from time to time like in the motion picture and then in subsequent movies. So I thought that was really neat. But um but I will certainly remember her presence at conventions, and uh, to that listener, you, you know who you are. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, sad to hear that, and, and we thought we would be remiss if we didn't mention that in today's show.
2: Indeed. If you have a, a special memory, by the way, because we're reaching out to one person, but you know, as you mentioned, it's, sort of a, it, it's been sort of a rough year for, for, for some of the Star Trek community. And people want to share, you know, stories that they have or just, you know, anything else that they would like to share with us, we do, of course, have uh, contact information, ways to get in touch with us. And uh, we'd love to share that with you. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the way to get in touch with us on uh, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. That again is Mission Log Pod. You can call us, 323 522 5641. That number again, 323 522 5641. You can email us, missionlog at Roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discovered Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And uh, remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log.